Today's reading is taken from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Candice, thank you for thank you for reading for us. Um, you'll have picked up that we reached the end of the letter of the Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, it's a great. Uh, passage for us to to finish on. Lots here for us. Can I encourage you as we look at these verses, we're going to work our way through the verses and it's helpful we find to have the the Bible open in front of you so you can see what's being said, what's being referred to. So please do that. Uh, Let me pray uh, as we come to this now. Our Father, as we look at your word, we do thank you once again for this letter. We thank you for what we have seen over the past week's and what we've learnt. And we pray again this evening that you would teach us, that our hearts would be ready to hear your words, uh, that it would, our hearts would be ready to receive your words gladly. And Lord, we pray that you would change us, change us to become more like your son Jesus from what we hear tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one thing that comes across in this letter as you read all the way through it is that Paul really loves this church that he's writing to. Now sometimes people think of Paul or will speak about Paul as this kind of cold academic or perhaps even a bit ruthless at times, but that's just not the case, is it? His warmth in this letter comes across all the way through. He's thankful for these people. He loves these people. And he writes to express his thanks to God for them. Now you see that in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says this, I thank my God 
in all my remembrance of you. And you see that same warmth as he comes to the close of his letter in those last few verses. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. See, they're much, much loved. And they really love Paul too. And we know that because in the close of this letter, this final part, Paul comes back to his main reason for writing to them. He wants to thank them for one specific thing. He wants to thank them for a gift of money that they sent to him to meet his needs while he's in prison. Now, Paul's actually alluded to that before in the letter, chapter 2, verse 25. He speaks there of this guy, Epaphroditus, who's the one who brings that gift to him in prison and who almost dies in the process. But though he's alluded to that, he's not actually thanked them for it yet. And so he does that here in this uh, final part. But there's a problem in Paul's mind. How can he thank them without it seeming like a subtle hint that he wants more money? I wonder if you've ever sort of done that. You say, oh, look, thank you so much, Auntie Doris, for that chocolate cake. It was the best cake I've ever tasted. Couldn't get enough of it. We loved it. I, I, I wish I could have your chocolate cake every day of my life. You, you thank her in such a way that poor old Doris has no choice but to make you another one. So, so you can have it uh, all the time. Now Paul goes out of his way here to make it clear that that's not what he's doing. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, in verse 11. And then later on in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift. You know, he's almost a bit over the top. Be really clear, I'm not asking you for more dosh. He wants to make that clear. That's not what he's doing. What he wants to do is offer them genuine thanks for this gift without them feeling compelled to give them, him some more. But actually, as he walks that line, he does more than that. And you'll have picked this up as it was read. He uses the opportunity that he has to thank them as a teaching opportunity. He wants them to learn. And we know what he wants them to learn. He said that earlier on in his letter, chapter 1, verse 27, that they let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he wants for them. And so this is an opportunity for him to teach them. And it's to teach them two things, and those are the things that are there on the back of the service sheet. Two things. He teaches them how to be joyfully content with what they've got. And he teaches them, he encourages them to be more and more generous in gospel partnership. Contentment and generosity in gospel partnership. Those are the two things. That's what we're going to see uh, as we go through. So two things that you'll find in someone whose life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. 10 to 13, joyful contentment in the Lord. And 14 to 23, generous gospel partnership with others. That's where we're going. So let's have a look at verse 10. That's what Paul writes. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So this is the situation. The Philippians have sent Paul this gift of money for his needs, and that's demonstrated their godly concern for him. Actually, when he uses that concern word, he's uh, triggering in their minds the the very beginning of the letter. This is how Paul felt about them. Uh, It's in chapter 1, verse 7. It's the way that he feels about them. He's concerned for them. And so they've shown their love for Paul, just as he's shown their love for them. But just as you look at verse 10, you can see that it's been a while since their previous interaction with Paul. And it seems a bit like, well, perhaps because there's been this gap in communication, perhaps Paul thinks, well, maybe they're not concerned for me anymore. It's easy to think that when someone that you love hasn't been in touch for a while, isn't it? And it's not like in those days you could just sort of send Paul a couple of quick heart emojis on WhatsApp or anything. It's hard to stay in touch. You know, he's, uh, and Paul in particular is hard to stay in touch with. He's moving around all over the place. And of course now he's in prison. But Paul's reference to the delay, the length of time, it's not a criticism. He now realises that it wasn't lack of concern that meant that they hadn't uh, been in touch with him. It's lack of opportunity. And we're not told why. There may have been lots of reasons for it. Maybe they couldn't locate Paul. Uh, Maybe they didn't initially know that he was in prison. Maybe they were struggling for funds themselves and it took some time to just raise the cash. Or maybe they had more urgent needs, other things that they were involved with. Whatever the reason, Paul is now overjoyed that as soon as they had the chance, they sent this gift on its way to him. And just imagine him sitting in his prison cell and seeing Epaphroditus, his friend, come in with this gift. What an encouragement that must have been. Now, it's at this point in the letter that Paul needs to make clear that that he's not asking for more, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. And here's the opportunity for Paul to teach them this critical lesson. He passes on what God's taught him and, and what they need to learn if they're to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned... In whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It really is quite something that Paul is saying here. See, here's a guy, he's in prison for speaking about Jesus and there's a very realistic prospect of his execution to come. And yet he says from his prison cell, I'm content, I'm okay. Could you say that? I mean, just, I mean, forget prison for the gospel for a moment. Could you say that right now, where you are in your life? Could you say that you're content, that you have real joyful contentment in your situation? There's an English Puritan 
He's a guy called Jeremiah Burroughs, and he had a really tough life. Um, he was a reformer, and as such, he was always doing battle with the establishment. He was always having to defend himself. And at one point, he has to leave his church that he's a pastor of, which is in Norfolk, and he has to flee to Rotterdam in, in the Netherlands. Um, he's exiled. Later on, he returned to London. He'd lead a church there, but he died relatively young at 47 uh, way back in 1646. But he was much loved. And after his death, his friends, they got together a collection of his sermons and they published them in books. And they did so for his sermons on Philippians chapter 4. And the book was called this. It was called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. See, Burroughs had realised in all of his troubles, and there were many, that what Paul described here was something that he needed. And it was something that actually very few believers really come to grasp. That real, joyful contentment in all of life's mess, which is a rare but precious thing, it's a jewel. Now, this is how Burroughs defined it, and I don't think there's a better definition out there. Let me read it to you. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. See, Burroughs had discovered the contentment that Paul knew. And it's the contentment that every Christian has access to and that Paul longs for his readers to discover. So the question is, how do we get it? How do we find this jewel of contentment? Well, let's just look at these verses a bit more closely. We're going to learn three things. Number one, discontentment is normally about wealth, but not always. Discontentment's normally about wealth, but not always. Paul says he's found this contentment when he's brought low, when he's hungry, and when he's in need. And he's also found it when he abounds, when he has plenty and abundance even. So those examples there are to be to do with wealth, aren't they? To do with wealth and things that wealth buys, particularly food. Those are things, of course, that we are particularly often found wanting. But he also says that there is discontentment in any and every circumstance, in every situation. And if we just think about our lives, we find that to be true, don't we? There are many people who are not content in their jobs or in their houses, their homes, or in their marriages. Or in the fact that they don't have a job, or a nice home, or a marriage. 
or many other things. What Paul's going to say here is certainly true of wealth, and we should apply it there, but it also has wider application to all of life, anything which we can be discontent. That's the first thing. So discontentment is normally about wealth, but it's not always. It can be about anything. Here's the second thing, that contentment isn't found by getting what you want. So in each of those examples I gave, people will find themselves discontent with their lot, and what they find themselves doing is they, they find themselves longing after something that they think will make them content or think that make them happy. But so often, if they get what they want the job or the house or the marriage or whatever it is, whatever it is that they've set their heart upon, when they get it, they discover that discontentment still dwells within their heart. What they thought was their greatest need, if only I could have that, then I would be content. Well, it turns out just to be a mirage. It's not the change of situation that brings contentment, although we almost always believe that it will. Paul says, look, I've learned to be content when I'm poor. But he also says, I've learned to be content when I'm rich. And that when the situation changes, for better or for worse, his level of contentment doesn't change. Isn't that something? Wouldn't we want that for ourselves, whether we go up in the world or whether we go down in the world, we find ourselves happy with our lot. This reveals that contentment's not found by getting what we want. That's the second observation. Here's the third one. That contentment is not natural, that it has to be learned. Not natural, it has to be learned. And if you notice that in the way that Paul phrased things, He said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And he says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If contentment is to be learned, then that must mean, of course, that it's not natural. We're not naturally content. We're naturally discontent, always wanting more. By nature, we, we want more than we have. Now, we know this again, we know this instinctively, don't we? We we get the latest phone, and it works perfectly well, but as soon as the new one comes out, before we've even realised it, we want that one. We think, well, I've just got to have it. Or you go around to a friend's house, and their house is bigger, and it's cleaner, and it's just generally better than your house, and before you know it, you find yourself thinking, well... My life would be so much better if I lived here. See, discontentment just comes naturally to fallen, sinful hearts. We all feel it. And so contentment has to be learned, says Paul. But the question, of course, is how? That's what we want to know. How do we learn contentment? Well, he puts it in quite an interesting way, doesn't he? He says that I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, why does he say it like that? Well, the word, the word secret there is a, it's a word that 
is used in the religions of Paul's day in the pagan world. And it's used to describe the mysterious things that you discover once you're on the inside of things. So as you enter into that spiritual world, you experience it, you discover things that you never knew before when you were on the outside. So how does Paul learn the secret of contentment? Well, by experiencing the various circumstances of wealth and poverty, certainly that's part of the experience, but that can't be all because others go through that as well and they don't end up content, they end up bitter and they end up discontent, anything but content. Now he explains the real discovery, the real secret in verse 13. Here's the secret he learned. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, my guess is that many of you will have heard that verse before. Uh, it's, a, it's a Christian sort of fridge magnet favourite. Uh, it goes on tea towels and things like that. It, on its own, it, it, it's a verse about supernatural power just to do anything you want, isn't it? That's what it means if you just got it on its own. But that's true, I guess. Like God will equip you to do whatever he's asked you to do. But the context here is about contentment. The secret of contentment is a person. It's a him. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so this verse means that contentment is not possible unless you know Jesus Christ personally. Humanly speaking, it is impossible to be content. It is only possible in Christ. Why? Because when we have Jesus, we have all that we need. Knowing Jesus provides this deep satisfaction and peace and strength in our hearts, which frees us from the constant desire for more and enables us to face any circumstance with joy. Knowing Jesus allows us to say, I am satisfied and at peace with where I'm at. And I will be tomorrow as well, no matter what comes. Do you have that strength? Do you know that kind of contentment in your life? Some of us in this room will have so much, and yet we find ourselves just constantly chasing for more, don't we? And some of us here are going through really difficult times and there are some really difficult things among the church family at the moment. Well, what shall we do? Well, Paul would have us, each one, fall upon Jesus. Let us know him more. Let us draw on him and the strength that he gives for each day. And in knowing him and resting in him, let us receive that rare jewel that Burroughs spoke of, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, do you want that? 
Well, I do. That's the first mark of a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's joyful contentment in the Lord. Now let's turn to the second. Now there, there is a, a connection, I think, between these two things. Because when a, when a Christian finds real contentment in their situation, uh, because they know Jesus, well then this is what they can do. They can give everything away, can't they? Because they're not clinging to what they have. They're not always searching for more. They can, they can freely give it away. They willingly and joyfully are generous with others. And they're willing to suffer with others in gospel partnership. That's the second thing. Verse 14 to 23, generous gospel partnership with others. So verse 14, Paul here is returning to that, um, that topic of thanking them for the gift that they've sent. This is what he writes. Verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. I just noticed that. Paul sees the financial gift to him whilst he was in prison as the Philippians sharing his trouble. Sharing is the, that partnership word. It's the partnership word throughout the, the letter, the one that you get in the next verse, same word. It's the word that we saw in chapter one, where Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. So it's their partnership that Paul appreciates, and it's just been expressed in this financial gift. But notice this too, it's partnering in his trouble, it's sharing his suffering, being with him in that. See, Paul ends up in prison, it would be very easy, wouldn't it, just to distance yourself from him, to stay apart from him, to, to pretend that you don't really know who he is or you've got anything to do with him. But they don't do that. They share in his trouble. They send him this money. People know that they've sent him this money. His suffering for the gospel has been their suffering. His trouble is their trouble. This is really what the Philippians are doing. They don't have much, but they give away what they have. And we learn that this isn't actually a one-off for them. This is something that they've consistently done from the beginning. Verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that's when he first came to Philippi, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Let's just look closely at their example here. It's a wonderful example for us. Verse 15, they weren't believers for a long time before they started giving. It was in the beginning, from the beginning. They gave also when no one else was. Verse 16, they made a habit of it once and again. And they also did it when it was logistically challenging to do it. And as Paul moved around to other cities, like to Thessalonica, they, they continued to find him and, and, and send money to him. And then verse 18, they gave generously. It wasn't reluctantly, it wasn't just the bare minimum, Paul was amply supplied. 
It's a real wonderful example of partnership, isn't it? I think here there there is an important principle for us about financial generosity in Christian gospel partnership. It's not like giving to charity. Okay? Now, giving to charity, good thing to do, but it's not like that. Because when you give to charity, well, what you do is you give your money away to someone else or to something else, to a project or to an agency that someone else runs. But really, once your money leaves your account, that's nothing to do with you anymore. But this isn't that. It's much more like partnership in a family business that your resources are invested in, you're committed to. See, real gospel partnership means that we're involved. The gospel partner's needs become our needs. Their troubles are our troubles. Their costs are our costs. And of course, wonderfully then their gospel fruit is our gospel fruit. I think that's what Paul means when he says he seeks the fruit that increases to your credit. See, we're blessed by the gospel harvest that's produced by such partnership. And when he speaks at the end there of of the gifts being a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God... He speaks of the Lord's joy as the Lord sees this kind of partnership. It's not financial reward that we receive when we partner with others in this way. But as one commentator put it, it's heavenly interest accruing to our account. The Lord is pleased when he sees this kind of generosity and partnership. The kind of partnership that's willing to suffer together for the gospel. Verse 19 provides a great reassurance. See, they've sacrificially and generously given what they have, and they may not have very much, they probably don't. And there might be some thinking, well, look, actually, that's pretty risky for us to give in this way, isn't it? Because what will we have left? Will we be able to survive? And it's true, humanly speaking, you give at a level that hurts, and you may go without. But here's the truth. We can't outgive God. So we can give freely and joyfully in full contentment with whatever we're left with. Verse 19, and my God, says Paul, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, how does this come home to us? Well, let's just think about last Tuesday night, our prayer meeting. Tuesday night at our prayer meeting, we heard heard from uh, several gospel partners. We heard from Anya Serduk, who's going to Nicaragua in January for one year. She's going to work with uh, an evangelistic ministry to young families. We saw on Zoom, Davi and Emma, a couple we've supported through their training. We've partnered with them in their student ministry here and they're now serving in Burkhead up on the Murray Coast. That's a region with few believers or gospel churches. 
And we also heard from Craig and Amy Anderson, who are serving up in Charleston with Andy and Curry and Robertson, and, and they're planning to plant a church down in the borders in Galashiels next year, and they're looking for a team of people to go with them. These are partners in the gospel. Or are they? Are they really? Are they partners according to Philippians? See, this would urge us, I think, to really partner with these kinds of people and with our other global partners and national partners and with other churches who love Jesus and proclaim the gospel. See, Philippians is the book on partnership in the New Testament. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it looks like love. It looks like genuine affection and warmth looking to the interests of others over our own. And it looks like prayer. Paul is always praying for his partners and they're praying for him too. It looks like sharing in their trouble, sharing in suffering, seeking to encourage one another in the midst of hardship. And where it's needed, it looks like generous financial giving. Proactive, plentiful, creative, costly giving. And what's the fruit? Well, there's an eternal fruit for us, but in the here and now, the gospel is known. People are saved. Churches are strengthened and stand firm. And the glory goes to God. Or may we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. May we be joyfully content in the Lord. May we be involved in generous gospel partnership with others. Let's pray. I'm just going to use as we close the words of Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1. We'll pray for ourselves now. Our Father, we pray that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.